Well, um, speaking of prayer, uh, prayer is a really important part of everything that we do here, and uh, because, quite frankly, the things that take place here um, on a weekend or in any one of our ministries throughout the week, um, it's all supernatural. Like, if you think about it, um, in our flesh... There's no way that we should wake up early on a Sunday morning, early on a time change Sunday morning, no less. Um, There's no way that we should wake up early and get to church on time so that we can worship God. In our flesh, there's uh, no way, it doesn't make sense for us to lift up our voices and sing the songs that we do, and yet here we are. It doesn't make sense that we would open this book and pay careful attention to what God has to say to us through it, and yet here we are. It doesn't make sense for us to pray to a God that we don't see because we believe that he has grace and power for what we're going through, and yet here we are. In our flesh, it doesn't make any sense for us to put ourselves out there to serve one another with such joy in our hearts, other people within this family of faith, and, and yet here we are. And we need to remember that it's all supernatural. Um, it's all from the Lord. We can't lose sight of that, and that's one of the reasons that prayer matters so much for us. In fact, um, I would even say that this moment right now of opening the Bible is such an important time for prayer to be happening. And so um, we have a prayer team that is praying right now for me, and they're praying for you as we open God's Word. And um, that happens every uh, weekend for each of our services. And uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that his preaching was made by the prayers of the people. And um, I'm certainly... um, I'm certainly not Charles Spurgeon, that much is clear, (laughs) Um, but I certainly understand that I need the prayers of God's people. And so um, I want to personally invite you to be part of our during service prayer team. You, uh, as part of that team, you won't pray during every service every week, but you'll be part of a team that makes sure that every service every weekend is covered in prayer. And uh, if that's something that you want to do, if that's something that the Lord is Uh, laying on your heart, then I would encourage you before you leave today just to hit the connection table out in the lobby. It's it's right out those doors there. You walk right past it on your way out the door and uh, just go to the connection table. Tell somebody there, I want to be part of the during service prayer team and they'll get you on the right track to being part of that team. And I would love it. I would love it if there were uh, so many people who were part of that team who are covering this time right now in prayer before the Lord because we can't lose sight of the reality that what happens right now is supernatural. So, with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, we ask uh, now in this moment for you to do what only you can do. Lord, believing that um, the Spirit of the Lord is here, And as we just sang, a miracle could happen even right now. The miracle of new birth, new life in Jesus Christ. The miracle of sanctification. The miracle of the Spirit of God working in us so powerfully as to burn away sin within us and cause us to walk in obedience and holiness with Jesus. So Lord, we come before you now in humility praying that you would do these very things. Bring about, we ask, the miracle of conversion 
in the miracle of sanctification. For the glory of your name, teach us now, we pray, Spirit of God, that we may walk closer and closer to Jesus with every passing day. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, speaking of the supernatural, we're back in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and um, we're going to do something this morning that uh, I'm not sure we've done before. Uh, We're going to go back into the passage that we uh, were in just last week. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, I was driving home from church last weekend and uh, just in the car by myself, just thinking about things that had happened that morning and thinking about the sermon especially and um, realizing that there's so much that could be said. Like for everything that was said in a sermon, there's so much more that could be said. And uh, that's part of the blessing and the curse of being a preacher. Uh, the blessing is that you get to say so much. And, and the curse is that there's so much that you can't say and you can't fit everything into one message. And so uh, I was thinking about that and praying about it. And, um, and we're going to come back to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And Uh, In some sense, uh, that's kind of the way it is with every sermon, but in another sense, this is really one of the truly amazing passages in all of God's Word because in Ephesians 2, we see uh, the gospel in a nutshell, and we see with absolute clarity how much God really loves you. We see how much, like unmistakably, how much God loves us. Those are some of the most powerful words in the English language, aren't they? When somebody looks at you and and says that they love you, you look at somebody else and you tell them that you love them. Maybe uh, you can remember the first time that your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend said to you that they loved you or or you said that to them and the feeling of joy that just wells up with inside of you and, and you love that. Maybe you can remember an important time in your life where a parent or a grandparent told you that they loved you and Often that means so much more coming from them, doesn't it? Because they know us for who we really are, and yet they tell us how much they love us anyway. And uh, maybe for some of you, um, you're on the other end of that love seat, so to speak. Uh, You would do just about anything for mom or dad to tell you that they love you. And you just wonder how much the relationship would change if you could actually hear those words roll off of their lips. And maybe it's become so bad for you that You don't even really want to know whether or not that important person in your life loves you or not. It's better left unsaid because it's become so difficult and so bad. And and perhaps it's so difficult for you that it's even impacted the way that you understand how God loves you. See, part of what makes the Christian life so different for us is that God tells us exactly how much he loves us. He makes it so abundantly clear His love for us. In fact, uh, this is message number five in this series. And one of the reasons that we set out in this series in the book of Ephesians is to grow in our understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, Who has God made me to be? And if my identity is not found in uh, the things of the world around me, if my identity is not found in my job, if it's not found in my accomplishments, if it's not found in whether or not that person loves me or not, then what is my identity found in? And I believe that the foundation for that, uh, the answer to that question is found right here again in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, Paul says that one of the key factors in understanding your identity in Christ is to understand that you are unconditionally loved by God. 
Paul says back in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The reason that you are alive in Jesus Christ is because of the great love with which God has loved us, with which he has loved you. And so today I'd like to take you back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just going to look at these last three verses in this first section, verses 8 through 10. And I want to show you five reasons this morning that you can know, five reasons beyond any shadow of a doubt as a child of God that you are absolutely and totally loved by God. It's five reasons you can know that you're loved by God, and I pray that this will encourage your heart. Let's look at the text together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so five reasons that you can know that you are loved by God. Here's the first. I know that I am loved because I have been saved forever. I know that I am loved because I have been saved forever. So Paul's main point is in verse 8 where he says, you have been saved. And we think, well, that's great, but what have I been saved from? Well, that takes us back to the first part of chapter 2 in verse 1, where Paul says that we have been saved from death in our trespasses and sins. Verses 2 and 3, he says that we've been saved from captivity to the world and the power of Satan. Verse 3, he says that we have been saved from the wrath of God. Like, think about that. that we have been saved from all of that. But there's even more here to what Paul is saying. That little phrase, you have been saved, is written in the perfect tense. You're like, well, what's the big deal about that? Like, why do I need to know that it's written in the perfect tense? It's important because Paul's trying to communicate something really significant to us here in writing this. Think back, if you would, to the moment that you were saved. The moment of your salvation. Like, maybe it was a conversation that you were having with a friend who had been sharing the gospel with you for a long time. Maybe you were sitting across the table or on the edge of your bed with your mom or your dad and they were inviting you to trust in Christ. Maybe you had come to the end of a long season in your life where you had been relentlessly asking questions about Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to give my life to God? What does it mean to surrender everything to Jesus Christ? And you had come to the end of that period in your life only to enter into a new season of new life in Jesus Christ. Think back to the moment that you got saved. You remember you remember that moment? When Paul says here, you have been saved, he is saying that the power of God that saved you in that moment is so strong that it is still working in your life right now. No matter how long ago you were saved, whether you were saved last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, it doesn't matter. The power of God that saved you in that moment is still working in your life and that power will continue to work until the day that he takes you home to heaven to be with him forever. So when Paul says you have been saved, that's what he means. So think for a second about the implications of that. Let's think for a second like the Bible thinks about this, okay? So the Bible uh, talks about our justification. So justification is the moment that you got saved. That's the moment in your past 
where you confessed your sins to God and trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus to make you right with God. In that moment that you got saved, you were declared innocent before God. You were declared righteous in the sight of God. Think of it like this. To be justified, you could say, is just as if you had never sinned and just as though you had always obeyed. Just as if you had never sinned, but just as if you had always obeyed. So Jesus doesn't just take all of your sin upon himself. He does that, but he also gives you his perfect obedience in exchange. He gives you his righteousness so that when God looks at you, like we've said before, he no longer sees the pollution of your sin. He sees the perfection of his son. To be justified means that you have been saved, past tense. And you have been saved specifically from the penalty of sin. Okay, so that's the first part of our salvation. But then the Bible also goes on and talks about our sanctification. So sanctification means that the power that saves you continues to work in you so that you can live like Jesus. See, if you're saved... Listen, if you're saved in Jesus Christ right here, right now, then you are in Christ. And everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. God, listen, God looks at you right now and he is well pleased with you. But now, to be sanctified means that the Holy Spirit gives us power to walk in obedience to Christ. So, where justification frees us from the penalty of sin, Sanctification is freeing us from the power of sin within our lives. So justification is that one moment in the past when you got saved. That's the one moment when you came to Christ. Sanctification, though, is the series of ongoing moments since you were saved that is freeing you from the power of sin and progressively making you more like Jesus. So justification means that you have been saved, Sanctification, then, means that you are being saved, present tense. So understand this. Let's be really clear on this. It's not that we keep getting saved over and over again, as if the first time wasn't enough. Like, once you're justified, you do not need to be re-justified. You can't lose that justification. What we're talking about here is that the power of God, at the moment of our salvation, keeps working so that we walk with Jesus in our life which leads then to what the Bible calls our glorification. So think about this. When, when our life is over, we will enter into God's presence forever. Like, that's amazing. We, we are not just freed from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but glorification then frees us from the presence of sin. So you can think of it like this. Justification means that you have been saved, Sanctification means that you are being saved. And glorification then means that you will be saved from the presence of sin. So just think about this. When we get to heaven, we are glorified and we see our Savior face to face in all of his glory. We shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. And think about it. Only then will we truly understand our real identity in Christ. Just, just keep pulling on this thread with me for a minute. Think about this. How would that change your life? 
How would your life change if you could live with the security of knowing that your never-ending battle with sin will never cancel your salvation? Like, how, how would your life change if you could have that absolute confidence? And that's the good news of the gospel. You can live that way. You can live with that confidence. That's called justification. How would your life change if you could live with the sure and certain hope that God is not done with you yet? That you don't have to live this Photoshop Christianity and feel the pressure of it because you never seem to measure up to the standards that everybody else puts on you. Listen, you can live that way. That's our hope. That's called sanctification. And how would your life change if you could have the confidence to ask God for grace and mercy to fight against sin and to obey him until the day that he takes you home to be with him? Listen, you can live that way. That's called the hope of our glorification. And all of that is wrapped up in this one little phrase, you have been saved. And that never changes. Nothing will change that. Listen, think of it like this. The power of God that saves you is the power of God that sanctifies you. And the power of God that saves you and sanctifies you is the power of God that will secure you until the very end. You have been saved. How do you know if God loves you? You know because you have the assurance that you have been saved from the penalty of sin and you are being saved from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin forever. I mean, just consider the confidence that this gives us to endure in the Christian life, to endure day by day, week by week, that no matter how difficult your trials, no matter how deep your struggles, no matter how dark your circumstances, no matter how desperately you question whether or not God really loves you, listen, you can have the absolute security of knowing that you have been saved forever. Jesus says in John 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Like you have been saved and you have been saved forever. Like you know that God loves you. I don't know about you, but we could pray right here and be done. That'd be great. But we're gonna keep going. Notice this second. Number two. I know that I am loved because I have been saved by the grace of God. I have been saved by the grace of God. The start of verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. Unbelievers in Paul's time had a very interesting understanding of grace. They believed that grace was a favor that you would do for someone else out of the generosity of your own heart with no expectation of anything in return. And their concept of grace was to go above and beyond the normal expectations for them. The thing was, they would only do these favors for people that they considered to be their friends. They would never do it for their enemies. Only the people that they considered friends. God's definition of grace goes light years beyond that, right? Because God shows his favor toward us while we were still his enemies so that we could become his friends. God goes above and beyond normal expectations by giving Jesus to come down from his throne of judgment so that he could take the judgment for our sins upon himself in its entirety. And he does this all while the only thing that we've ever done is turned away from him. The only thing we've ever done is rejected him and he's gracious to us and he saves us. This is grace. Grace is the favor of God upon us that we have done nothing to deserve and nothing to earn. 
I love how Paul says it in Romans 3, verse 24. He says, Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. He's justified us. He's made us right with God. He has saved us freely, he says, freely by his grace. There's another layer to this word grace. Um, The word as, as it was used then was intended to teach us that the one who receives the grace is meant to be a gracious person. The one who receives the grace is meant to be a gracious person. It's kind of like the physical resemblance that you see between parents and their kids. Like you can look at a parent and child and almost instantly see the resemblance, the physical qualities, the personality traits. They walk the same way. They talk the same way. And the same is true in our relationship with God. God gives us grace that saves us, and he saves us so that our lives will resemble who he is. Now think about this for a minute. How do you forgive someone who has sinned against you? You forgive them with the grace of God that has forgiven you. How do you love someone that by all outward appearances doesn't deserve to be loved? In fact, they even keep pushing the love away. How do you love your enemy like Jesus taught us to? You love that person with the grace of God that has loved you. See, friends, this is who we are. This is your new identity in Jesus Christ. This is at the core of the radically transforming work of grace that Christ has done in us. No longer are we a people who live only for ourselves. No longer are we a people who only look out for ourselves. We are a people who have been saved by grace so that we can scatter this grace to the people around us. See, the recipient of grace who does not become gracious has missed the point of the grace that has saved them. You see? This grace of God doesn't just save us. This grace of God radically changes us. So I know that I'm loved by God because I've been saved by the grace of God, which leads us right to the next point, number three. I know that I'm loved because I've been saved through faith in Christ. I've been saved through faith in Christ. Look at verse eight again. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. John Patton was a faithful missionary a little more than 100 years ago to people who lived on what was called the New Hebrides Islands. He was translating the Bible for the islanders, and, but he came to the realization that there wasn't a word in their vocabulary that would clearly communicate this idea, this concept of faith. So he was stuck a little bit until one day, one of the islanders came rushing into his office, completely exhausted, fell down into the chair next to Patton's desk and simply said, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And right then, instantly, Patton knew that he had his definition for faith. Faith is resting your whole weight on God. Think back again uh, to that moment of your salvation Back to that, that day, that moment, that time when you got saved. And, and at that time, Jesus was calling you to rest your whole weight on God. 
to believe that God is worthy to be trusted with your life now, but also with your life to come. Now, if, if we're completely honest, this is where things get a little bit tricky for us, right? Because we've already seen in Ephesians that God orchestrates every single part of our salvation from the very beginning to the very end. If God doesn't start it, if God doesn't provide through it, then quite frankly, we're not saved. And, and at the same time, the Bible makes it very clear that we have a responsibility to believe in Christ, to put faith in Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 6.40, up on the screen for you, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just a few verses later, verse 47, Jesus again says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. A little while later, John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus caps it all off by asking her this, Do you believe this? See, there's most definitely a call for us to believe. But the call of salvation is not for us to believe in ourselves. It's not for us to believe in our own strength. It's not for us to believe in some nebulous idea. It's not for us to believe in some philosophy or some set of ideals. The call of salvation is for us to believe in Christ. Have faith in Christ. And how many times do you hear people say, you just got to have faith? got to have faith. Faith in what? <laughs> faith in Christ. Maybe, uh, maybe right now you're like, okay, time out, because I don't get it. Maybe, maybe you're trying to process all of this, and, and you're thinking, well, well, wait a second. What do you mean when you say believe in Christ? What do you mean when you say have faith in him? See, becoming a Christian is so much more than just um, mental agreement with a list of statements, Right? Although there are certain things that you need to believe to be true. There are certain things that, that you have to believe are absolutely true. For example, uh, God, I believe that you are holy and I am sinful. And I have sinned against you. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place and for my sins and rose from the dead for my victory. God, I believe that Jesus is the only one who can save me from my sins and make me right with you. God, I believe that only you can make me spiritually alive, and so I trust in you. There are certain things, certain propositional statements that you have to believe are absolutely true. But becoming a Christian is more than just a mental decision or an emotional reaction. It is a spiritual submission to all of the things that Jesus has said. Okay? It's a willingness to place our lives under the complete control of Jesus Christ and to let who he is and what he has said determine who we are and what we do. That's why we say that our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in ourselves. Our identity is not in who we are or what we can do. Our identity ultimately is in who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has secured for us, what Jesus has called us to do and to be. So think, if our identity is in Christ, then faith means, on the one hand, a denial of self means a denial of self. If I'm taking Jesus at his word on everything that he has said, 
then I need to come to the understanding that my life is not my own, that I've been bought with a price, that grace has so dramatically opened my eyes that I realize the Christian life is actually all about Jesus living his life through me. That this life is not about me. It's not about my identity. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. It's about who he has made me to be. So more and more, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, my life then becomes the channel through which the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus flow abundantly. Because it's his life that's being lived through me. That's your identity in Christ. That's who you are. That's what Christ has done for you and secured for you and for me. But we need to understand that faith, biblical faith, is not just a denial of self. It's also a dependence on him. It's a denial of self on the one hand. It's a dependence on him on the other hand to say, Jesus, your grace has helped me see that your way of living is the only way to truly experience life. So as I go through life and as I experience things that I don't understand, I am still going to walk in faith and in obedience to you. Even when I don't get it, I'm still going to do it because you are worthy to be trusted. How do you know that you're loved by God? You know because you have been saved through faith, which leads right into reason number four. I know that I'm loved because I've been saved in spite of myself. I don't know about you, but I got a pretty hearty amen for that one. I've been saved in spite of myself. Look at what he says in verse 8, second half of verse 8. He says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. When he says here that this is not your own doing, um, Make a note of this. He's not just talking about the grace. He's not just talking about the saved. He's not just talking about the faith. He's talking about the whole package. So when he says this is not of your own doing, he's talking about every part of our salvation. Every part of our salvation is a gift from God. There's not a single part of this that we can do for ourselves. How do you know that you're loved by God? Because he saved you in spite of you. Saved me in spite of me. And surely, if he can save me in spite of me, then he can save you in spite of you. And just for all of the ways that we try to justify ourselves, for all of the ways that we try to make ourselves right with God, God says, listen, saving you is my gift to you. And I am giving you, God says, I am giving you the entire gift right now. At the moment of your salvation, the moment that you got saved, it's like God says, here's the entire gift right now. You don't need to wait for anything else because there is nothing else. God gives all of it to you in that moment. All you have to do is receive it. We, we love getting gifts, don't we? The more extravagant the gift, the better, right? And um, our culture is, is built around it. Our calendar is built around it. We got Christmas and birthdays and anniversaries, Fridays, like, right? Like, like we'll make up any excuse to, to get some gifts, right? But some of us love to give gifts as well. But when it comes to our salvation, God is the ultimate gift giver. And when it comes to making our salvation possible, 
God doesn't want anything in return. He doesn't want anything back for us that's going to make our salvation that much better. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Paul says in Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Galatians 2, verse 16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's like, oh, Paul, if you could just be clear on what you're saying, right? It's like, no, he's absolutely clear on what he's saying. You cannot save yourself by the things that you do. You are saved by the grace of God. Like, this is God's gift to us. So, your works then, to try to bridge the gap between you and God, to try to make sure that you're right with God, are futile. Why? Because the Bible says that they're like a polluted garment. They're like a filthy rag. Even your best efforts and your greatest intentions will never be enough. God's gift to us in our salvation is complete. Okay, so when he says it's the gift of God, he's saying it is absolutely complete. It is perfect just the way it is. There's nothing more that needs to be done. I mean, think about it. When you try to add to it, you're actually taking away from it. When you try to add to the power of what God has done, you're actually taking away from the power of what God has already done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. So your work of helping the poor will not save you. Your work of coming to church will not save you. Your work of giving money will not save you. Your work of time spent will not save you. Your work of telling other people about Jesus will not save you. Your work of being baptized will not save you. Your work of being a good person will not save you. Your work of slipping into heaven on the coattails of your parents' faith will not save you. Your work of following a bunch of religious rules because they sound like really good ideas will not save you. Your work of getting your kids to harvest kids every weekend, to youth ministry every week, into a Christian camp, camp every summer into a Christian school, that will not save you, and it will not save them. It, it's a good idea to get them into places where the gospel is preached and they can be saved, but those things in and of themselves will not save you. What saves you? The finished work of Jesus on the cross in your place for your sins is what saves you. You have been saved by grace through faith. Just think for a minute, how prideful is it, how pitiful is it, that we would come before God and say, God, the perfect and complete gift that you have given to me that has cost you everything is not enough. And so I'm going to do what I can to try and make up the difference and fill in the gaps. Like, how pride-filled is that, right? That's why he says at the end of verse 9, so that no one may boast. 
so that no one is going to stand before God on that final day and say, okay, God, I met my quota. Okay, God, I did my reps. Okay, God, now you're obligated to give me heaven. Just think about that. Nobody is going to be walking around in heaven with a spiritual swagger. Like, I did that. Right? Nobody's going to be walking around in heaven like a sanctified Frank Sinatra and singing, I did it my way. Like, it's just not going to happen. Now, I imagine that there are some of us here who have maybe spent a lot of time, spent a lot of spiritual blood, sweat, and tears, and you have been working and working and working. You, you just want to make sure. You want to make sure that nothing goes unnoticed by God. You want to make sure, absolutely sure, that, that God sees you and that you're right with him. And, and for some of you here, you've been doing that out of tradition because that's part of the religious tradition that you've spent the better part of your life in. For some of you, you just do that now out of routine. For some, it's become habit and it's become so deeply ingrained into your life that maybe you don't even realize that you do it anymore and there's just some things in your life, even some good things, and you're using those things as your bridge to God. And in a way that you don't even remember happening, those things turned into some twisted kind of idolatry that was supposed to get you closer to God. But now, you just look back on your life and you just find that you're more jaded instead of joy-filled. That you're more pessimistic instead of peaceful. And God's saying to you in the midst of all that, listen, this isn't the way that it works. You can't work for what I want to freely give you. You can't work for your salvation. This is God's gift to you. And when God gives the gift to you, it is perfect and complete just the way it is. And he says, this is enough for you. That is what our identity is grounded in, the finished work of Christ in our place. Okay, you got to see that. I love how D.L. Moody put it. He said, the thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work. A nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God. Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he saved you in spite of you. Saved you in spite of anything that you could do for him. You want to know what God wants from us? He wants the gift of a life lived for him as a response to the gift that he's given us, which leads us now to this final point, number five. I know that I'm loved by God because I've been saved as God's masterpiece. I've been saved as God's masterpiece. Take a look again at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, We said last week that this word workmanship is used only one other time in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, where Paul makes a reference to God creating the world and how he brought about life where no life previously existed. And so now, Paul's using that same word to describe you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship. God has created something new in us. He has brought about life where no life previously existed. It's pretty amazing. 
That word workmanship in verse 10 literally means masterpiece. It means masterpiece. You want to know your identity? You want to know who you are in Jesus Christ? You are God's masterpiece. And that's not to say that, that there's things in our life that don't need to get better, that there's things in our life that we don't need to grow in. Of course, we know that there are. But when it comes to the gift of salvation that God has given to you, when it comes to the reality that God has made you a new creation in Christ Jesus, you are God's masterpiece. Masterpiece. His saving work within your life is absolutely perfect. And so who he has made you to be and gifted you to be and called you to be, the person that God God has made you as a result of his redemptive work in your life is lacking nothing. Nothing is missing. So you know what that means? It means that you don't need to feel the pressure of trying to be somebody else. It means you don't need to feel the pressure of trying to be somebody that you're not. Hey, moms. Moms, listen. Listen up, listen up. This means that you don't need to look around at other moms that you think have it all together. Because I guarantee you that there are parts of their lives that you don't see. And you don't need to feel the pressure of trying to be somebody that you're not. You don't need to feel the pressure of trying to live up to a standard that, that you feel like you're never going to reach. See, for all of us, being God's masterpiece means that you don't necessarily need to do what everyone else is doing just because everyone else is doing it. What God has called somebody else to may not be the same thing that God has called you to. You know what this means for us spiritually? It means that you don't need to feel the pressure that if you're going to be really spiritual, if you're going to be a really spiritual person, that you need to pray like that guy or, or you need to evangelize with the passion of that girl. I mean, ways for us to learn, ways for us to grow and be challenged and convicted? Absolutely, yes, in love and in grace. But here's what it comes down to. Our spiritual maturity is not measured by how we stack up to the people beside us. It's measured by our obedience to the good works put before us. That's what he says in verse 10. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your spiritual measuring stick is not the person sitting beside you. Hear that? See, isn't that so often where our identity just goes off the rails? Your spiritual measuring stick is not the person sitting beside you or your small group leader or a ministry leader or a pastor or a person in your life who you think is really spiritually mature. Your spiritual measuring stick is the word of God. Your spiritual measuring stick is obedience to Jesus Christ. You have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. That's who you are. So just think about this. Again, let's just pull on this thread. If I have been made by God, doesn't it make sense then that I have been made for God? And when you come to understand that reality, that the heart of spiritual maturity is simply walking in obedience to the things that God has already made really clear to us, then you begin to see that anxiety about your future loses its power. When you begin to understand that, you start to see that insecurity about how you think you compare to someone else loses its power. Fear of the unknown loses its power. Worry about wondering if things will ever change loses its power. And in the process, 
grace becomes sweeter. And mercy becomes deeper. And hope becomes stronger. Why? Because who you are and what you do is rooted in what Christ has already finished for you. Final word today goes to two groups of people. To those of us who are saved, that's the vast majority of us in the room. I pray that this realization of God's love for us will fill us with humility that is overflowing to the place where we realize we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ for the glory of God. And and I pray that that humility that grows in us would lead us then to holiness that seeks to glorify God in all that we do. And that in turn then will lead us to a growing hunger for the Lord and whatever it is that he wants to do within our life, wherever it is that he wants to take us. Like I pray that when we come to a right understanding of how much God loves you, that it will grow in us humility and holiness and hunger, that we will go from here and live for the Lord, live out of our identity in Christ. Second word goes to those who might be here this morning and you do not believe in Christ. Will you receive him today? Will you believe in him today, right here, right now? You can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in him. Because like he said, whoever believes in him has eternal life. For those who physically die, being spiritually dead in their sins, all that waits is the eternal wrath of God. But for those who die physically, having been made spiritually alive in Christ, everything that belongs to Christ will belong to you, including the hope of being in his presence forevermore.